In case you missed it, on News Talk, a look back at the week that was. I, w- I would never like, come to Connolly by myself at night. I've always been in a group. It's just like there's always something going on. There was, I mean, I was only on the train the other week and someone smashed a window on it. So there's rarely, I mean, there's security there now, but I rarely see security even on the trains. And is that the worst of the antisocial behaviour you've seen as a window being smashed or have you witnessed I mean, no, other things? Fighting, like people start screaming at each other, like inspectors come on and people don't have tickets, but like some people like just give over and start having a fight and start throwing things and it just ends up like killing something. I mean I've seen most I've seen is rolling joints on the train. I mean like there's been people who are clearly on drugs kinda of hanging over on the train, like being passing out but I mean, even just the train stations, though, I mean, around here, it can be horrible coming out late at night. There's people hanging around outside there, especially Connolly on the steps, and, like, even just, like, catcalling and stuff like that, like, all the time, you know. Do you feel safe using the train at night time yourself? No, I wouldn't. I mean, even now, I'm going to work, but I wouldn't get the train home. I won't come back here then tonight to get the train home, because I don't finish till 10. So, no, I wouldn't do it. So, I'd be using the train, like, once maybe a month twice a month maybe max and there's there's usually like some fairly like creepy characters just kind of lurking there There, there'd be like a person or two per train ride at least just being kind of creepy and there's there's always like disruptive people like in the form of teenagers and stuff when you say creepy what do you mean just like does it make you feel uncomfortable on the train yeah like people staring at you or like just kind of you feel like they want you to kind of move or something like I don't, I don't know how to describe it but yeah it just makes you feel uncomfortable do you think it's understandable that Irish rail workers are threatening to go on strike yeah I, I think that's fair enough yeah like if if you don't feel safe on the train like if you feel kind of uncomfortable then like I, I, I think it's fair enough to just protest about it Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered why we see colour differently? Well, take a listen to this. I would imagine, though, that, that, that the meanings associated with colours, I suppose, is the, is, is the more correct way of putting it, changes over time in the sense that when we say the word green now, we've a set of associations with that with that, that we mightn't have had 100 years ago. Well, that's a really good point you make, Sean. I mean, you know, obviously we have linked green to plants and to vegetation for many, many thousands of years. Uh, But it's only really in the last 50 years that we have started to link green to the environmental cause. Uh, We think that that only started around 1970. In fact, there's one uh, story uh, about this uh, political group in, in Vancouver who were meeting to, they were called Don't Make a Wave Committee, and they were meeting to protest against a nuclear test that was going to be detonated in Alaska. And at the end of the meeting, uh, the chair of the meeting signed off by going peace to everybody. And one person in the back of the room said, let's make that a green piece. And they went on to name their first boat, the green piece. And that was the beginning of our association of green and the environmental movement. And now you can't escape it. Every time anyone says the word green, or every time you see a green plastic bag, or a green sign outside a shop, you know what it means. It means trying to be environmentally friendly. Um, Also, different cultures, I imagine, would have 
um, a, a differing amounts of words to describe colours, depending perhaps on how embedded particular colours are in their culture. That is also absolutely true, that it's an extraordinary thing how varied uh, different societies' vocabularies are for colour. So there are some uh, languages around the world that uh, only have terms, colour terms, for, for black and white. Some only have terms for black, white and red. Uh, we in the English language have about 11 basic colour terms, um, but some cultures have many more than 11 colour terms. So in Russia, for instance, they have two very distinct words for blue, and they, as far as they're concerned, are completely different colours. In, in Italy, they have three specific terms for blue, and those are completely different colours. So there's a great deal of variety. And, and we think that actually the, 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 the colour terms that different languages have are as quite rightly as you say are linked to what societies think are important to them so generally farming communities might have lots of words for green uh, cattle herding communities have lots of terms for cattle colors uh, languages that love horse societies that love horses have huge number of different words for horse colors so it's it depends on on social context and what we think of uh, as important yeah that's so interesting and isn't there a story in your book about when when color television first arrived in japan uh, <laughs> yes. that the japanese didn't think that was color Yes, exactly. I mean, well, you know, it's important to say that while we in the West often think of black and white as not being colours, mm. I mean, the number of people who have come up to me as I've written this book and said, why are you including black and white in the book? They're not colours. Uh, for much of the world, black and white uh, are colours. Uh, and in Japan, that is the case. In Japan, black and white are colours like every other colour. So they originally had black and white television, but for them, it was colour television because black and white were colours. And so when colour television did arrive from the West, uh, they couldn't call it colour television because as far as they were concerned, they already had colour television because black and white were colours. So they mm. called it natural television instead. Yes. Okay, that's, that's probably a better term for it. <laughs> is, there, uh, is it possible to invent a new colour, uh, particularly with digital technology? Oh, yes. New colours are being invented all the time. So currently we have around 40,000 dyes and pigments on the market. New colours are being invented on purpose and by accident uh, every pretty much every week. Uh, now that we are so good at manipulating digital technology, but also, uh, you know, the material technology, we can create colours that were previously unimaginable. I think a few years ago there was uh, a nanotechnology company that invented what they called the blackest black ever made. Mm. And they did this by growing carbon nanotubes in a very, very dense forest on a substrate. And this created a black that absorbed 99.965% of visible light. So it was significantly blacker than the previous blackest black. Um, and so these kinds of products are being invented all the time. Yeah, and it's extraordinary really that colour takes up so much of our world. But like, is it the case none of us actually see colour in exactly the same way? Well, it's absolutely true. Colour is, although we, when we see the world, we think colour exists out, out there, independently of us. The truth is the vast majority of colour is created inside us, in our brains. It's therefore a very subjective experience. And none of us see colour in quite the same way. I mean, first of all, a lot of men have colour blindness and mm. they're seeing fewer colours than most people. We think there are very small 
percentage of women who potentially have a, a, an extra dimension of colour vision because of a rare chromosomal abnormality and therefore can see hundreds, if not millions more colours than everyone else. Uh, and of course, as everyone sees things differently. A few years ago, that you may remember that photograph went up of the dress online. Yeah. It went viral because no one could agree whether the dress was blue and black or white and gold. And that is all evidence of the fact that so much of colour is, is about subjective interpretation. It is indeed such interesting research there from art historian and broadcaster, Dr. James Fox from Moncrief. On Monday, the Pat Kenny Show spoke to best-selling authors, Lee and Andrew Child. Here's a short clip. Now, they used to use the term uh, a knight of the road to refer to a tramp, someone with no possessions, who wandered from place to place, maybe picking up an odd job here or there. But Reacher really is a knight of the road because he has all those good deeds to his credit as well as his nomadic lifestyle. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, he, you know, he everything, a lot about Reacher is about the choices that he makes because, you know, of course he could, if he wanted to settle down somewhere, he could take a permanent job. He had one before in the army. So um, everything he does is a choice. And I think that that is another thing that appeals to people because a lot of the time in our everyday lives, we feel like we have a lack of choice. You know, you might be fed up with your job. You are sick of what you have to do in order to pay your mortgage. You're fed up with where you live. There are so many things that just seem out of your control. Whereas with Reacher, everything is within his control. He goes where he wants. He does what he wants. And if he comes across a situation that he doesn't like, because, for example, he's in a little border town in Arizona and he comes across some people doing bad things, then he can choose to do something about that. So I think the choice aspects of what he does is really important too. Yeah. And then the critical component really is the fact that at the end, he always leaves. It would be a completely different story if Reacher showed up in a little town, sorted out all of the problems, and then he bought a house there and was everybody's neighbor. You know, the, re the relationship between Reacher, the, the person who blows in, fixes it and leaves, and somebody who's living next door that you have to have this long ongoing relationship with and maybe you're upset because his dog escapes and messes, makes a mess on your lawn or whatever, completely different, completely different. So um, it, you've got the fact that he's, he's in control, he can choose what he does and when he's finished each, uh, each adventure, he will always leave. I think mm -hmm. those are really important things. Um, one of the elements that people often uh, comment on because it, it's a recurring motif throughout the book where someone will ask him, as in this book, where's your luggage? <laughs> and he says, I don't have luggage. I don't believe you. Um, where, are you where are your clothes? I'm wearing them. I mean, that, that is a recurring motif. And, and what happens, you know, do you wash them? Do you go to, no, I don't go to the laundromat because I don't believe in laundromats. I just throw them away when they are no longer wearable. Now, a lot of people find that surprising. But years ago, I was working on the North Sea gas pipelines as a student in, in Britain when they were putting in feeder main number two. And a lot of the Irish navvies would wear the clothes until they fell off. And then they'd go to Marks and Spencer's and buy exactly the same again and wear them until they fell off. So they were their own little Jack Reachers in their way. I'm so glad to hear that, Pat, because uh, it was something I invented as a kind of symbol, almost symbol of the unattached, alienated person. And I did think it would work logically. And I'm so happy to hear that it does, because, yeah, why wouldn't you do that, 
because if you start to carry a spare shirt, then pretty soon you got spare pants as well, and probably pajamas and this and that. <laughs> and then you got two bags, and then you got three bags. You've got to stop it at the beginning. You've got to say nothing. Nothing means nothing. And that's another thing people feel uh, attractive about Reacher as an example, because people get oppressed by their possessions, you know, especially when there's a financial crisis, which we've all had for years and years. Um, suddenly that big house you bought doesn't seem so smart or the big car you bought with those big payments, that doesn't seem so smart. So people turn to Reacher and say, yeah, look, it's possible. He, he 20 bucks for a motel every couple of days, 20 bucks for a, a new shirt. He's doing okay. Authors Lee and Andrew Child from The Pat Kenny Show. On Monday, Lunchtime Live explored the do's and don'ts when travelling for cosmetic surgery. Here's Andrew Gilligan and Jessica Maciel. What research involved, Jessica, prior to, to, to going? Like, obviously, you had made the decision yourself, you wanted to get it done, but in terms of actually deciding where you would, you know, go to get it. Um, so, well, it was actually, for me, it was a friend of mine, was go- the friend that I was going with had decided that this is where she was going and she had heard really good things about this place. So I kind of jumped on the bandwagon with her and went with her. In terms of research of what you were getting, um, you know, mine, I got silicone put in. I know, obviously, there's been things in the past with, you know, toxins and things like that. So I, I have to do my research on that and be aware of what the symptoms are and be aware that these kind of complications can take place um, and these are all things that you have to factor in you know I'm sure there have been people who mm. have had bad experiences abroad so you have to consider that it's surgery there's complications and you're putting something foreign into your body. How painful was it? Um, it uh, surgery itself when I woke up after surgery you know you're still obviously on a you're on aesthetic all that kind of stuff so you're you're kind of out of it for a little while and you're not in too much pain I'd say it was the following day day two and day three uh can be quite painful you know you're swollen and you're still coming off and down off a lot of meds you also on your first day have drainage coming out of each side so you're carrying two drains um around you for your first day the main the main pain was a pressure kind of in my sternum area that when I stand up and down and you yeah. can't lift your arms or anything like that. So that's when you, you need help. They're the, they're the times that you need you need someone to help you because you can't shower yourself and you need assistance with all that. And how long did the pain last? You're, you're four weeks now, isn't it, post? Um... I'm four weeks post-op on, on this Wednesday. Um, and I don't really, the only pain I experience now would be maybe the odd shooting pain or muscle pain. It's basically like like muscle pain that I experience now. In terms of scars, I've just been left with two scars. They're about four or five centimetres long underneath each breast, but with the fold now because they've settled. So they were quite high when they were originally done, but they drop then a few centimetres over time then to kind of look a little bit more natural. And the scars now are, are covered because there's kind of that that fold, and hopefully they'll fade off uh, quite a lot. And um, but that's just with that surgery. If anybody's considering um, reduction surgery, the scarring is a is a lot uh, a lot more intense than what you'd be doing okay. for an augmentation. Yeah. Are you happy with them? I'm delighted with them. I'm absolutely delighted with them. Yeah. And um, was the language barrier ever an issue? 
the language, so when you arrive in Turkey, the only people that don't speak English are your taxi drivers, but that doesn't really matter because they already know where they're going. That's all set up for you previously. Um, the nurses don't speak English. So that was, I wouldn't say that it was a problem. It was probably more like just a little bit inconvenient because when you're after your surgery, you're not feeling too well. So I kind of would have to pick up my phone, go onto Google Translate, write it out what I was trying to say to them. And, you know, that was how we communicated with them. Um, your surgeon speaks fluent English. Your anesthesiologist speaks fluent English. So I suppose, you know, the people that you that you really need to have the important mm. conversations with, they speak fluent English. Okay. Um, so you, when you were thinking about getting it done or, or travelling to Turkey um, for the, the, the breast surgery um, operation, so that must have been during the pandemic, was it? Or how did you liaise with them in advance of that for pre-consultations? So everything is done, yeah. So it would have been it would have been decided a good few months ago, and everything was done uh, over WhatsApp. So they have they do everything via WhatsApp. So you chat. There's various different reps, and these reps work for the clinic. So even when you are over there and when you come home, you still communicate with them through WhatsApp. And um, so if, for instance, I had a problem in the hospital or like that, I could text the rep, say, you know, I need this or I need that or whatever. But what they do is they send you all the details through WhatsApp. Then they send you emails with documents that you have to fill out. You pay a deposit and you book your flights. They send you your itinerary. And then you just basically, which was a weird part of it for me, uh, was you have to send them photographs through WhatsApp so the surgeon can have a look. Um, So obviously that was a little bit strange because you're kind of sending photographs of yourself to a WhatsApp number now. Thank God, obviously everything worked out and it was all legitimate. But yeah, that was a little bit strange for me. Some frank advice from Jessica Maciel from Lunchtime Live. But first, Shane, Simon Harris will today appear before the Oireachtas Education Committee and he's going to tell that committee that students coming out of school are without sex education, are without digital skills, financial literacy and climate knowledge that they need for life. He says basically secondary school students entering the university system, which is of course his bailiwick, uh, don't have the kind of grounding or or life skills that they need. What did you make of it? Yeah, I kind of get instinctively worried when I hear this kind of talk because like we're not turning out robots and we don't want uh, robots. And Like when I hear about preparing you for life, Life prepares you for life. Education is about, or at least I think it should be about, developing critical thinking, broadening your mind, increasing your knowledge of the world. And like, and maybe it's ridiculous. I, I always kind of envy the, the education that the ancient Greeks had, Kira. You know, it was music, art, literature, science, maths, with a bit of politics thrown in. If I'm being totally honest, I don't want my kids to be fluent in Mandarin when they and it's nothing against uh, Mandarin as a language but I, I, I you know, know I don't want mean. them I don't want them to be to know coding uh, backwards I want them to know their own literature their own culture I want them to know their own language I want their minds to be expanded I want them to be hungry for knowledge like how many kids out there know the names of every plant and every tree how many know the, uh, the names of all the stars above them how many know our national language I'd say precious few to me that's more important than churning out units for the economy. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with you on that. Uh, I do think there is room to change and evolve the curriculum of second uh, level students. I'm not sure, to be fair, (laughs) in response to what Simon Harris has said, that any 16, 17 or 18 year old ever left school, even when we were young, prepared for life. So I don't think that's a new thing. And I also happen to think that we are infantilising young people for far longer than perhaps in our day, dare I say it. I I think they stay in education for much longer now. It's over 80% of them go on to third level. They live at home for much longer now. So, So not being prepared for life as such is maybe not that big a deal. But having said that, I do like the idea, Shane, about them coming out with half a clue about things like financial literacy or or, or sex and relationships and things like that. I think is that the job of a? I'm not sure that 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 the classical Greeks necessarily are are who we should be looking for because they lived a very very different life to us. Yeah, but they but uh, yeah. It, they their minds were broadened. They were ready to learn, and we that don't surely know that, is the Shane. important thing. They, we they were misogynistic, oh, we and they were they were ah, brutal, they, sorry, and they chopped off people's heads. Oh, yeah, sorry, Kira. I'm talking about their education system. I'm talking about how yeah, it well, prepared it, 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 them to now, learn. It, they were primitive in many many ways. Yeah, of course they were. It was thousands of years ago. But I'm talking yes. about how it made them think, how they learned, how they broadened their minds. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not comparing the two societies. I'm saying I it would opened their minds to learn. There was a handful of, of, of philosophers, and the rest of them were all I'm sure there was loads. I'm sure there was loads of peasants but I'm talking about the education system that was available to those who had it I'm saying I think that uh, that uh, goal of broadening your mind uh, being able to critically can we not do think, both well, like financial literacy is that really the job of schools I don't think it is I don't think well who's well whose job is it and if it isn't the job of you schools learn these we, so things. We're you just... learn life teaches you these skills like you can't learn I, everything I, in school I, I think he has a point I, I think I think the point that they aren't prepared for life <laughs> it was ever thus but I think he has a point that they learn some drivel and, and that they could learn more applicable things to their lives and that's not necessarily a bad thing Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast Netflix and Amazon Prime at the moment they can be quite good for content Amazon Prime, though, since Brexit, it's kind of gone a bit. It's lost quite a lot. You have more of their original stuff than all the other stuff that used to be there. So that's kind of not as good anymore. What have you been watching recently? What's been good? Uh, just whatever's kind of current. The newer shows coming out. Squid Game and, and such. Like, If the Irish government were to put a levy on the likes of Netflix, Amazon Prime, but that money would then go towards Irish productions, would you be okay with paying extra? I wouldn't really be a fan. Um, in the past, there hasn't been many great Irish productions as such, and most of them are free on RTE Player or whatever. Anyway, as it is, so probably not because it it's already gone up in the last few years. I think Netflix used to be about eight euro, and now it's thirteen. I think a month for the cheapest, so it's gone up quite a bit. So I don't think I'd be really impressed with that now. And as a user of streaming services, how often do you go looking for Irish titles? Um, some of them do. It's not quite common, really, to have a lot of Irish titles on, on them. Really, they're not they're not the most popular, really, around the world. So that's obviously why they don't look into it more. But, um, there are some that I'd be interested in seeing, but not not that much. And if the subscriptions were to get higher, would you be almost pushed then to to cancel them? Possibly, yeah, or or, or reduce down to just one subscription. So I have like most of them between my family. Like we split them up, so I'll have like. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, things like that. Um, and then obviously like Sky and things between, I mean, sharing passwords and things like that. So I have most of them, but I also watch a lot of stuff. Um, but I, yeah, I guess it, de- it would depend on 
like how much content they're putting out and like what's most relevant I don't know like I think they generally are around like 12 or 13 a month so I feel like you can't go much more than like 15 I don't know do you think it is value for money currently for what you're getting um I think because I share with a lot of people then it is but if I was I would never be able to pay for all of these by myself like monthly yeah so if the Irish government was to bring in a levy where you might have to pay a little bit extra but the money would go towards Irish production of companies which would mean more Irish films more series yeah. would it be worth the money I, yeah, I guess it depends on how much but I definitely could be convinced like up Irish production really so yeah is it something that you think there's enough of you were saying you've got a lot of streaming services that you pay for yeah is there enough Irish productions I feel like there are so many really good Irish productions out at the moment especially and like I can't remember the like um, animated film company that made like Song of the Sea and Legend of Kells and all of those but like those are like Oscar nominated fantastic films so I'd love to see like independent Irish film companies getting more money to make like those amazing films yeah and productions yeah uh, I would pay for Netflix and Disney Plus I think Netflix is twelve ninety nine and Disney Plus is eight ninety nine. so what kind of things are you watching at the minute is it is it value for money uh, yeah like it's definitely value for money like Squid Game is really popular I watch that and all but um, and Disney Plus is really popular with all like the Marvel and Star Wars shows that come out if the Irish government were to put a levy on streaming services here would you want to pay more first of all if you were going to get more Irish programs in return uh, I don't think it's really fair to ask people to pay more because considering Netflix and Disney Plus already hike up their prices by themselves and it's like is the government really in the right place to be putting up the prices when the streaming services already do that now you you've got Disney Plus you've got Netflix is it something that you would look for as more Irish programs no I would want more Irish programs and just seeing like more Irish actors in like bigger movies and stuff and if the government could find any money to put that into like film programs or just get more Irish people interested in acting or something yeah it seems like if you just hike up the prices for more streaming services people won't realise what it's actually for whereas if you like try to start up charities or something and try to get funds directly going to it it's just more direct and an easier way to do it Barry White reporting for Moncrief I-C-U-M-I In case you missed it On News Talk Cheese, onion and tomato The kick of the onion I like to savoury I like egg and onion as well Egg and onion And what about the egg and onion? It's kind of hard if you bring that out with you If you were going somewhere You can't really wrap it up for the day You can smell it Smelly all day then No, you'd only have to have that at home Only the ham Just the ham? Yeah With any butter or mayonnaise or anything like that? No just the ham. Would it, would it be a bit dry, you know? It's a bit dry, but I like it that way, you know. I might try the mayonnaise on it sometime. And have you ever tried any other type of fillings, or has it always just been the ham? Ham. A salad is my favourite sandwich. I do like a chicken in it, yeah. Right. And what about these hot chicken rolls that people are getting in delis? Have you tried a hot chicken no, roll? No, I don't believe in those. <laughs> you're, you're not a fan of the hot chicken roll on a Sunday morning? No, I'm not. I'm home cooking. Chicken tikka. Yeah, that'll do me every time, yeah. Can't, can't get enough of it. A yeah. nice kind of saucy one, is it? Or? Yeah, the, the old stuff in the, the deli, you know, with the, the tikka sauce on it, yeah. Kills me, mate, every day. <laughs> I like apple. Apple in the bread? Apple in the bread, apple and maybe a bit of sugar if it's a, if it's a sour apple, but apple. Well, no, because I've heard of banana sandwiches, but apple. So, oh, so, apple sandwiches are great. So butter and then just slice up the apple. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And would you, would you add any other fillings to it? Maybe a bit of cheese, but no. 
If, you, if I'm going to toast it, but otherwise, just apple. Toasted cheese and apple sandwich? Yeah, yeah. So what's your go-to sandwich? Whatever's in the fridge. No matter what it is, you'll throw it in between two slices of bread. Exactly. Prefer brown bread. Ham, cheese, sausage, and rasher. And mix it all up. <laughs> you mix it all up. From Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. On Friday, Off the Ball discussed Henry Shefflin's appointment as the new Galway hurling boss. Here's Jerry Gilroy and PM O'Sullivan. In terms of what we can expect the style of play to be, we had uh, Paul Bell, who's the chairman of the Galway Hurling Committee on the, yeah. the OTBAM during the week, and um, and I don't, I don't want to misquote him here, but he, he did say that like Henry has a very straightforward view of the game and, and the style will be very clear to everybody early on. There'll be personal individual responsibility on particularly the forwards to win their own ball. This is my extrapola- extrapolation of it here now, which means that they're going to play a little bit like that Galway team, but also kind of like the Kilkenny team that he was successful with. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, good, a good assessment, a shrewd assessment, Ger. Um Look, there are, I, I'm, you know, I, it's not really important what I think, but, you know, for what it's worth, uh, over, I, I'm, you know, I would find the logic of a lot of what are meant to be what's called modern or 21st century type hurling, I would find the logic behind it hard to discern. Like, for instance, I, I would find it hard to sort of say or to understand why, why um, when a team would say seven points down and they have a strong win for the second half, I would hard, find it hard to understand the logic of playing with seven defenders and three midfielders and four forwards. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, there's an inherent, I think, kind of strange logic to that. And I think Henry would, maybe that's the shared Ballyhale background, um, I know all our medals, but we do have a shared um, Ballyhale background. And I think there's a pragmatism in Ballyhale over, over many, many decades now in the club and in the place. Well, it's and worked. And, and I can see why. That. You know, the one yeah. kind of, well, the, the elephant in the room here, of course, is what Limerick are doing and how they've taken what, what previously existed and they seem to have perfected it to a level that at the moment yeah. appears untouchable. So, how does the pragmatic world that strain of thinking that, that you have, that Henry has, that Brian Cody has, that Galway had to, to win in All-Ireland, how does that match up against the magician of Keen Lynch and the things that they can do? Because they can beat you direct if they, if they want to or they can just keep possession and keep, keep the ball at a very high level. And, yeah. you know, what do you do? What do you do? Well, I think what, what you don't do, just to start off, uh, is you don't do what Galway tried to do in 2020. They played seven defenders. They played a, s- a sweeper against Galway. And I think they, what, they got within three points of them. I mean, at, at points in that game, particularly during the, the, the second half, it was farcical. They had four men in their own full backline and their own puck out. They had a novice goalkeeper, you know, uh, um, who was in his first championship season uh, and put them under enormous pressure to have these sort of, basically like a dart uh, player trying to throw a treble 60 every throw. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and, you know, I think that's what you certainly don't do. I think, like, Limerick, look, Limerick, don't get me wrong, Limerick are very, very good, very, very good, and appear at the moment to be getting better. So that's a problem for all the other top-flight counties. But I think it's been well-established that, you know, you're not going to beat um, Limerick an ultra-defensive system. They, they play with a sitting centre-back, De- Declan Hannon, they play with six-backs, a bit like Kenny in their heyday played where Brian Hogan sat, say. But I, the, the really difficult thing about... Uh, probably Limerick taking them on is they have this extraordinary almost uncanny ability to win balls in the rook and they managed to do it by actually committing fewer bodies into the rooks in the opposition so you'll often see I would say maybe the, the heart of the Limerick mystery in one sense 
is the less glamorous side. Like they have wonderful players, as you said, Keen Lynch, um, you know, Sean Finn, uh, Aaron Gillan, Garoge Hegarty, uh, Tom Morrissey, tremendous hurlers. Like there's no doubt about that, an extremely good goalkeeper, Nicky Quaid. But the way they kind of get this, these harvest this possession in, in the middle third by kind of seeming to swarm, but I suspect if you had a really, really close-grained analysis of it, that one of the reasons they're actually doing this is they're probably doing specific drills, I would say, as well, to actually commit a body or two bodies less into a rock and still win it, you know, and they have this off to a fine art. And then they work the ball laterally um, from whatever side they, they gain possession, and then they have the option of running with the ball because a lot of them are supremely athletic and very well able to break tackle. And, um, you know, they can go, go along to a two-man full forward line, Flanagan and, and Galan, and it's very difficult to counteract. Some fascinating observations there from columnist PM O'Sullivan from Off the Ball. On Tuesday, the Health Check explores the issue of stress in our daily lives. Here's Kieran Cuddihy and psychologist Enda Murphy. Are there particular kind of personality traits or particular types of people or groups of people, demographic groups, who are more likely to suffer from the bad effects of stress? If Well, for starters, I'll share my own experience because you think as a psychotherapist, I'd be better at coping with stress. I'm usually quite not. I'm usually kind of, uh, you know, because, you know, I'm a full-time dad, all right? I have inherited all of mammy's stress and guilt and shame and everything, all right? So my head is going same way, 20 to the dozen because I'm a primary carer and the book stops with me as regards the kids. So like kind of, you know, it's nothing to do with gender, but we have an expression, you know, a mother's place is in the wrong. <laughs> well, a parent's place is in the wrong when the book stops with you because you always see. You never see what it is you're doing. You only see what it is you're not doing. But if you want to know, it wouldn't say that there's women are better or men are better or whatever it is. It's all to do with your concept of trying to be in control. Now, the knack of living is understanding the uncertainties, instabilities and insecurities of life without getting anxious. So keeping a balance that whilst there's an infinite number of possibilities, I don't need to start worrying about this until it becomes a probability. Now, if you're for somebody who finds dealing with question marks, with maybes, or may this, this may happen, or that may happen, or the other may happen, then you have to go sideways and you have to look at, well, what's adding fuel to that fire? So what's adding fuel to the fire is, is that every time you try to answer that one last email or you try to achieve your 100%, you're adding fuel to the fire. Now, you're not going to switch it off at 2 o'clock in the morning when everything's going buzzing in your head. You have to start switching it off in simple everyday things. So simple everyday things that you can do is look at what you're, you know, a little exercise I sometimes give people to show you how stressed we get is. Next time you're actually going, when you're driving home to Kilkenny Note after, after work, you're not to pass out any cars on the motorway. And if you do, Stop. it's a fiver to your wife, okay? And you have to, and she has to go out or she has to do something at the weekend. And you'll soon find how you're, most of us, we're satisfying our demands to be in control. So we don't get too stressed. But if you end up in a world whereby you can't, so I sometimes use the traffic lights exercise. If you're stopped at the traffic lights and you kind of, you know, the lights go green and your man doesn't pull off. All right. Well, how long do you wait before you blast the hornet? And if you're uh, waiting until three seconds. <laughs> okay. Well, One, maybe you kind of two, three. Yeah, three seconds. <laughs> well, then maybe you. And After five, they get the finger. <laughs> 
we'll see. You know, if you were lost in 10 seconds thinking, oh, you know, you don't know what's going on in his life. Then ah, 10 seconds. End it, end it, end it. The lights have changed back to red in 10 seconds. I mean, come on. Well, they have. But if he's done that twice or three times, you've no idea what's going on in that person's life. There was an exercise we used to years ago where you say, how oh, like, what would you do here, the person? And then you start telling them about the person who's in the other car, that they're actually just on their way home from the hospice, where their, their, their husband or their partner is actually dying or something. And then you realise that, you know, mother of God, you know, maybe they're under a huge level of stress that they're totally preoccupied for something else. So, you know, before you start blowing the horn, walk a mile in the other person's shoes. But finding that balance, that they're not doing it deliberately against you, but things aren't just the way you want them to be, Kieran. I want to get home. I want to do this. And he shouldn't be doing this. If you keep trying to control events around you, the more control you try to do, the, more, the worse it's going to get for you. And the paradox of life is the more control you try to exert over small things in your life, the less control you feel you're in. The less control you try to hold over things in your life, the more control you feel. Mm. So by not trying to control every little thing around you, you're able to focus all your energies into influencing the things that you do need to influence. So in in terms of helping people or people helping themselves, I mean, you, you said already when, when they get to the kind of the tired but wired um, uh, scenario, you know, and it's really impacting them, they probably need professional help. But are there things we can do and build into our daily lives that will stop us getting to that point? Absolutely. The first thing you have to do is you have to stop. Stop, look, go. It's the same way as you teach your children how to cross the road. You have to stop. Stop acting. Stop acting the way you are. Take some time out. Let the emotions calm down. Look around you. You have to bring your brain somewhere from that email you didn't send to somewhere else. Look for something in your life that you haven't had to work for, that you have, that you have something that you have that you haven't had to work for. A gift you've been given. You've water in your tap. You live in a very politically stable environment. You don't have to worry about where your next meal comes from. And if you start focusing on those things, you will then start coming to looking at what's going on around you that's going right for you rather than what's not going right for you. And then act, do something for somebody else. And if you just gently change your way of thinking, right, you'll bring yourself from a world of stress to a world of gratitude. And a person who's grateful can never be unhappy or will never get stressed. Some terrific advice there from psychologist Enda Murphy from The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. I C U M I. In case you missed it, on News Talk. I think people are tired of it. To be honest, I think I think people are a bit sick of the same exact same interaction over and over again. Hi, how are you? And I don't think that people are really uh, invested in a way that will actually lead to something anymore. I prefer it in person. You know, it's, it's easier to know a person that way than the, than it is knowing them off text. Young single people out on the dating scene say they'd prefer to meet someone in a traditional setting, whether it be through a mutual friend, in a pub or at work. The ways in which relationships are now sparked nearly always have an online connection. We did actually meet through work, but we did find each other online beforehand and then like got together through working. But yeah, I did know him from Tinder. <laughs> it was good to see that, like, obviously I know her from work, then found her online and saw she was single. So I just made it easier to make a move. But, um... Do you think there was an advantage there to having the online presence? You could kind of suss each other out in some way before you actually met? It got, it was like definitely kind of like, 
sounds like I do like background search on them, but like <laughs> you have like a bit of an idea of like about them before you kind of get started. But it's a conversational opener as well, isn't it? So it's definitely handy. Rebecca and Sean praising the online link that connected them, and millions of other couples around the world are thankful they signed up and swiped right to meet that special one. However, new research from the Marriage Foundation shows that people who get together on an app are six times more likely to get divorced in the first three years compared to those who meet at college or through family and friends. Research Director with Marriage Foundation Harry Benson says the findings don't undermine the role of online dating but just highlights some of the challenges. We looked at weddings since 2000 when online online meeting um, became a thing and we looked at the odds of splitting up in the in the in those early years, uh, and we found, maybe surprisingly, maybe not, um, that twelve percent of uh, couples who met online split up in the first three years, compared to only two percent if you've met through family and friends. That's a big difference. Um, and even when we took into account age and occupation in the clever statistics, um, we still found that there was that big six times difference, but only in those early years. So just for those listening today, what is the the safest channel to meet in? Like I read in the research that even as time goes on further down the line, meeting in the workplace is high category for divorce. Well, ultimately, if you can survive the first three years, which you might think is not a long time or you might think is an absolute eternity, if you can get past those three years, the stats seem to suggest that your your odds are pretty similar, more or less, wherever you meet. In terms of raw numbers, and, and that may make it sound a little bit complicated, after 10 years, um, 20% of the couples who met online had split up compared to 15% of people who'd met through family and friends. I mean, family and friends is still one of the most popular ways. It's just behind online. The advantage you have of meeting through family and friends, and I think the reason why there's this difference, is that you've got essentially a bit of social capital behind you. Whereas if you're meeting someone online, very often you're essentially marrying a stranger, someone who's a relative stranger to you. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. You can make it work perfectly well. But it's just that the the risk is higher because you're putting your best foot forward in those early years. You know, there's a lot of rose-tinted spectacles about things when you're seeing someone in their best way. Research Director with Marriage Foundation Harry Benson discussing the latest survey of 2,000 married adults. Tony from Dublin is now divorced and he met his wife at a dance many years ago. He believes the setting you meet has nothing to do with your chances of separating. I don't think that's going to say you get divorced. It's when two people get together. But then you have to get to know each other. And that's, you know, you need to get to know somebody, you know, before you get married to them, you know. You don't just meet them. And a lot of people have done that and got married. And sometimes it might work, but uh, I think you have to know someone first, you know. You, you, know. you don't think it doesn't matter, it doesn't make any odds if you meet online or not? I don't think so, no. <laughs> I don't think that makes a difference. Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. On Saturday, documentary on News Talk followed Ireland's mountain running community. When it was kind of um, getting bright as well, so I think I think I added a few detours on, but sure, I I got here anyway. <laughs> I fell into a load of rushes up there, and a rush went up my nose. I started bleeding. <laughs> Twenty twenty one was the busiest every year for the week around. But out of the 24 runners that took on the challenge at various stages between May and July, only two were women. In fact, only four women have completed the round to date. My name is uh, Karina Yonina. 
I started running in secondary school actually, uh, cross country. I felt like I was never re- very good at the speed, but I was very good at holding on. Started running outside of school and I ran my first marathon at uh, 16. And it kind of started my journey on to trail running as well. I moved down to Dublin, I got a job, I got a driving license, I got a car, and then I started training for the weekly round. I went from 23 to 24 during my training, and I always said I was 23 going on 40, because all my friends were like, let's go drinking on a Friday. I'm like, no, I have a recce at like seven o'clock, I can't, <laughs> there's no way. In 2017, Karina would be the second female finisher setting a new women's record. The 5th or the 6th of May, and it got really cold. And I remember there was a man walking down the way from Lucknaquilla, just in a t-shirt. I don't know whether he was a hallucination or was he actually there. I remember being given Red Bull and my crew was like, ah, you'll be fine. Just get up Mullacore, you'll be grand. Just keep going. So I did, and I was very lucky that the wind direction changed. As I got up, a jouse, it actually cleared. And it was a beautiful, beautiful sunset. Just the, the difference that the whole day makes, you go, you're in, you start with the clouds and then you finish in really, really sunny weather. A lot of the recent exposure about it then to kind of put it, I suppose, more kind of in the forefront. In 2018 and 19, there were a number of high profile attempts at the Wicklow round, with the men's record broken four times. First up was American Joe McConaughey, who took down Ian Keats' nine-year-old record. Well, I remember thinking to myself, sure, if he's after flying over from, I think, from somewhere from America, never been in, on these trails before, and never ran, and broke the record, surely, with a little bit of work, we can break the record, or someone else can break the record. My goal was definitely to, to go for Joe's, Joe's 17, 10, I think he had. Paddy O'Leary is a native of Wexford, now based in San Francisco. His trip home to try and take the fastest no time on the round coincided with the making of a film called Echoctawalia. The days leading up to it, I realised the day that I'd chosen to do it was going to be kind of miserable and the conditions in April were still pretty wet. I knew I had the capacity to do it, I knew I had the leg speed to do it. I wasn't too sure about my navigational capacity. I think people probably underestimate the effect on ground conditions and weather conditions. If you're getting battered against wind and rain, getting sort of very bad underfoot conditions where you're dragging your feet out of the the bog on top of some of the flatter parts of the mountain rather than sort of bouncing off them as you would get in dry conditions, I think it makes a huge difference to people's times and ultimate success or failures. What an impressive bunch from the Wicklow Round on documentary on Youth Talk. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some classic Henry McKean. Have a great weekend. You're both French. Do you tip? Yeah, I, I do tip when I'm happy with the service. Yeah. And how much would you give? Um, it depends. Like if I'm usually happy, 10%. Should employers pay their workers just proper wages like they do in Japan? And that way uh, there isn't really a tipping culture because everyone is paid quite well. That's a possibility. I didn't know about Japan. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds cool, I think. There's a bu- certain buzz. I used to work in a certain buzz to getting the tips. And You like that buzz? I did, I, but it was in, in the States. It wasn't here. 
I, I know that their wages are much lower in restaurants, four, five, six, seven dollars an hour. At the time it was two an hour when I did two. it. Two? Yeah, but I loved it. It was a cafe. I loved it. I loved being able to earn more by how I was, or less by how I was. So depending. you were on minimum, not even minimum wage, two dollars, a token amount. So I, I think that the thing of having the wages topped up by the tips is not, not good. So and I think there should be clarity. Yeah, it's from what I can see, yeah. And are you a tipper? Do you give much? I do, I do tip. What you Well, I often tip 20% or 15%. And sometimes if I'm feeling flahulach and somebody who's extra nice, I'll tip more. And my really? family are always saying, you oh, for God's more, sake. You give more, like 30%, 40%? It's just a buzz. Sometimes if I have the money, I'll give it because I so know you what... get a buzz giving as well as receiving? When I have it, yes, I do. I believe a really good waiter deserves a really good tip and we have fantastic waiters and waitresses in this country. And we're good at hospitality. We're we? fantastic at hospitality. We're probably one of the world's best. I've travelled a lot. I know what it's like. It's fantastic here. I also think that the restaurants need to make a living. That's very tough for them right now considering what they've been through and they're tight. I'm sure their profit margins are very tight. So I think it's up to the person going into the restaurant to make sure that the staff are looked after as well as they possibly can be. Does it surprise you that some restaurants actually do do that? They use the tips to prop up wages. That and this is, is a very small amount of restaurants. This is why they have to bring in the... I would imagine it's a minority, and it's very, very disappointing to see that. And if I, if I heard that was happening in a restaurant that I frequent, I'd be slow to go back there. You are a tipper. Oh, yes, I am a tipper every time. Once I get good service, and 95% of the time in Ireland, you'll get fantastic service. Would you ever not leave a tip and then say, look, the service was poor? I've had an, one or two occasions, but there hasn't been in Ireland. Where's it been? It's been in America. So you went to America and you didn't tip. There Absolutely. Must have been war over there it. was a lot of trouble. I was with my family. Uh, the family were quite embarrassed by it, but I stuck to my principles. The service was shocking. I told them the service was shocking. Their expectation was to get a 15% tip, and they got nothing. And they were angry. And they, and they, they were angry. They probably told you. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I C U M I. In case you missed it, on News Talk.